Hey guys, here's something new we'd like to try. We'd like to learn a little bit more about our podcast listeners in order to have better conversations and just find out exactly what you're interested in listening to. And as a reward, we'll give you your own pair of boxes and lined socks, which are very soft and cozy, by the way. I wear them all the time. Just go to the website custom.sockclub.com slash IEX and fill out a very short survey and get your own pair of socks mailed straight to you while supplies last. And they're also free. Again, it's custom.sockclub.com slash IEX. Also, when you do get your lovely socks, tag us in your sock selfies on Twitter and Instagram at IEX. Thanks, guys, and thanks, as always, for listening. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Boxes and Lines. Here he goes, yeah. my friends. Uh, today, John and I are very excited. We have the most esteemed guest we've ever had on our podcast, and a great guy, too. So I'd like to welcome Akam Steiner from the United Nations. We got to uh, meet with Akam when IEX actually was part of a uh, task force. But enough about us. We'll introduce Akam, and then we'll probably get to talk about that task force. We always make it about us, John. But uh, we, we, Yes, we do <laughs> until people revolt. Well, Akam is the UN Development Program Administrator. Thanks, Akam. We really, really appreciate you taking the time. Those of you on a podcast can't see, he's sitting with a UN logo in the background, and he had a full suit on and took the tie off to make us feel good. Yeah. But thanks for joining us. Great to be here. And I'll, I'll promise to take the jacket off in a moment as well. <laughs> <laughs> good man. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to any of our podcasts before, but I suspect if you had, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be joining us uh, today. But, uh, <laughs> He's taking his jacket off, folks. It's, it's very, we're, we're all on the same, we're all on the same <laughs> level now. So we, we thought what we usually do, and we start off with all our guests, and again, we appreciate you being here, is maybe like, everyone sort of knows what the United Nations is, but like, what is the UNDP? Tell us just a little bit about your career, how, how you ended up in this spot, because it's, it's, it's really interesting. And then we'll touch upon some of the stuff and how we've interacted with you over the past 18 months. Sure. And, um, you know, I really have no idea how I ended up here being the, the head of the United Nations Development Program, because my life began as the son of farmers. I was born in Brazil on a farm where there was no electricity. We lived with the generator. This was the 1960s. And yet um, being born into a family that, you know, went out into the world and growing up in Brazil and, and also being a Brazilian and a German citizen, I think there was a natural kind of inclination to, to look for my future somewhere in the international arena. And I then, you know, ended up studying development economics. It was my passion and um, found my way into, you know, what is traditionally called development corporation work. And the beauty of this is that it, it allowed me to do what I enjoy enormously, which is to you know, arrive in a country really being ignorant and then being fascinated by the culture, becoming literate in living there. And through the work that, that I try to do, hopefully contribute also to something that's called development. And you know, we often think development is only about poor countries. It's not. Every country right now is struggling with choices they need to make in the midst of this crisis. And that's really been my journey. And for much of that, journey initially, I began to focus particularly on the sustainability functions uh, that we often discuss. And, you know, this was the 1980s, 1990s, where the world was just beginning to realize that the future of what happens in our lives, in our countries, in our economies will increasingly be defined also by that notion of environmental sustainability. And the years that followed allowed me to work in Asia, in Africa, but also took me to Washington, D.C. for a number of years, where I represented the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. 
I then moved to Vietnam after that um, and then was um, asked to lead something called the World Commission on Dams, which looked at one of those great inventions of the 20th century in terms of large-scale dams and what did they deliver, what did they not deliver. Long story cut short, the reason I find myself today sitting in New York leading the largest of the UN's programs, the United Nations Development Program, is Kofi Annan. Kofi Annan called me in 2006 and, and uh, offered me the opportunity to lead the UN's environment program located in the heart of Africa, in Kenya, the Nairobi capital of Kenya. And that was the beginning, really, of a journey in the United Nations where I was attracted to because of this extraordinary idea of the UN. And, you know, this year is its 75th anniversary, and there's obviously a lot one could discuss about the UN, but the power of that idea is as strong today in my mind as it has ever been. Then, after 10 years of Nairobi, I was offered this unique opportunity to lead the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford, thinking about 21st century challenges, but it was a short-lived um, privilege because the current Secretary General then called me and invited me to lead the UN's development program. And that was about three years ago. And here we are in the midst of an extraordinary moment in human history, in the midst of a pandemic. You know, that notion of development suddenly has become something that um, I think we can all palpably feel is in danger. So in a nutshell, that's the journey. And here we are talking to each other. Wow. That's some journey, isn't it, John? I, I grew amazing. up in Ireland. I it's, came yes, to New it's York. It's a little bit humbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, so now gonna, I'm intimidated. Well, you're going you're gonna to be in your best behavior. Jeez, I'm, I'm not even going to curse now in front of Yeah, Ivan. all right, yeah. Colonials <laughs> are politically correct. Uh, I think that's often a misperception of our universe of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's, it's like how, how, we, how we met. I forget even how we got involved in the task force. But uh, IEX was involved in a task force on digital financing of the SDGs. And at the time, I didn't even know what SDGs were. Brad, <laughs> our CEO, was nominated to be part of the task force. The first meeting was in January of 2019, right? 2019, and it was at the annual Davos World Economic Forum. Yeah, I just had to plug it because John's he never had to, to Davos. Yes, he's always I have. He tries to impress everybody by saying he was at Davos. As I recall, you nearly stumbled into Angela Merkel when you were there, created an, yeah, an that's international true. incident. Was, yeah. I almost created an international incident because yeah. I wasn't looking where I was going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, this was the task force's first meeting, and Brad was unable to make it. So I started reading up on SDGs. And actually, when I landed there and I was walking around, I saw... SDGs everywhere. And again, I, like I was telling Akam before and to a lot of employees at IEX, sometimes I'm a little bit of an Irish cynic. And I went to this first meeting and the people on this task force are from all over the globe, all interesting stories, all people who actually give a crap about something. And it, it, it really, really rang through. We only spent probably like five hours with one another the first time. But my report back in New York is, guys, this is something we should be incredibly proud to be part of. And we should plow as much as we can into this. I mean, I remember you guys saying you don't want to run a task force that just talks the talk and in the end puts out a report 18 months later and does absolutely nothing. And I think it's fair to say already, and even prior, prior to the report being released, there's already things being worked upon. So I think you guys did a phenomenal job. And it's, it's been an honor to be part of it from an IEX standpoint. So, so we should talk some about the report. Yep. I mean, the timing yep. for this podcast is quite uh, auspicious um, because you have only just, I think yesterday, right, released this report that we have been, IEX has been proud to be involved in and provide input on, entitled People's Money, Harnessing Digitalization to Finance a Sustainable Future, 
which is uh, an interesting topic um, to begin. So do you want to give a little bit of a summary of what what the, the themes are, the conclusions, um, how you see the harnessing of financial technology to accomplish a variety of different goals? And b- before you do, Akam, one thing I think might be helpful to the listeners of this podcast, we have a lot of people in the trading community and non-trading community, is the STGs, Sustainable Development Goals. What, what, what are they? Because it's it's something that you hear a lot about. I'd heard the acronym, didn't really understand it, didn't understand the different groupings of it. And if you wouldn't mind explaining that really quick and then talk about the paper, that'd be fantastic. Sure. Let me just give you a telegraphic sort of summary. The SDGs, first of all, stands for Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of them. And, you know, many people, when they were adopted literally by that 193 member states of the United Nations in 2015, it was to many a surprise because to have all these different countries with all their different realities, with all the politics and geopolitics, defining the space within which we could agree on what is going to define success in development as both an individual citizen, as a nation, but also as a community of nations. Essentially, all of us on this planet Earth was a surprise. I think many people didn't think it was possible. And the second thing that I think people often think is, well, goals, the United Nations adopts a lot of goals and they are not achieved, and and is that failure? To those who work in the financial sector and the financial industry, let me perhaps put it in a different way. If you forget for a moment that they're called goals and you actually go to their genesis, then it is really a risk map of the 21st century. I mean, these 17 areas, and I think anybody who looks at them will find it difficult to disagree, define some of the most critical things that if we don't address them either as opportunities or as risks, we actually risk not only individually failing, but increasingly there is a global economy there is a global climate there is also global conflict you know migration refugees cybercrime extremism terrorism poverty hunger these are all phenomena that you know don't happen only in 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 a localized context anymore and so the goals were in some ways a way of saying we all agree that these are the great risks of our time how do we now address them positively poverty eradication trying to deal with climate change but also industrialization, life in the oceans, health, employment, access to electricity. You know, in some countries, some of the goals will be less relevant. In other countries, they will be absolutely fundamental to the next stage in development. And so the SDGs are a kind of compass into the future and also something that allows us, despite all our differences and different realities, to recognize that we are bound to succeed together or doomed to fail in, in at least a number of respects. And so here we are, you know, in 2020, almost five years after the SDGs were adopted. And remarkably, one, they are very much part of the conversation. First of all, obviously, more in the nerdy circles, in governments, in public policy. But actually, one of the great surprises has been how the private sector has embraced, with an interest to work with these goals, their value. And within that, even more interesting, the financial sector. And it is, I think, a very logical thing when you think about it. The financial sector is all about trying to look for opportunities and to also recognize risks. And if governments, if public policy, if the way we shape our development decisions can reduce the risk in our economies, be it of climate change, of unemployment, or of poverty, then clearly that's very good for investors. It's very good for financial markets. And I think in that sense, a very natural confluence happened here. So here we are, the SDGs are, in a sense, a roadmap, a compass. They're a risk map. 
But now we come to the real challenge, which led us also together as a task force, which is, okay, if we need to transform our economies, if we need to address these issues, how on earth are we going to finance it? Because on average, in the world's financial system, there is more money today than ever in human history. We're actually the wealthiest generation in monetary terms ever, over $300 trillion. Yet, the reality is that a lot of that money is trying to find opportunities to invest, and even more people are trying to find how they can secure investments and access to finance in order to work on these issues. And uh, I think our task force picked an issue that is very contemporary in terms of its implications. FinTech, digital finance, and the SDGs are an illustration of um, essentially technology meets the lifeblood of our economies. And I think trying to understand how in the 21st century, we could shape a you know, financial economy in ways that allows money not just to be in funds or to be invested in certain areas, but to be part of the solution to some of these problems is a critical challenge. And digitalization, digital technology, has created phenomenal opportunities. And let me end with one very brief example. There are hundreds of millions of people today who just 10 years ago did not exist on the radar of the financial system. They had no bank accounts, they had no collateral, they had no credit rating, and therefore they had no access to capital. Today in this task force, we discovered examples that are phenomenal. People who can borrow as a vegetable market trader in the morning money on their smartphone to buy the vegetables, go to the market, sell them, repay the loan, and have an income in the evening is now a reality in countries from Kenya to India to Bangladesh and parts of Latin America. It's a revolution that is unfolding. And that's sort of the backdrop against which we met at the time in Davos when we thought, and the Secretary General thought, digital could change the transformational potential of our time. Yeah. I mean, what, what I found was interesting is, and you might remember it, but at the first meeting, I was kind of a little intimidated by what is a U.S. stock exchange doing amongst all these people, but just to give you a little story. There was uh, one of the ladies, Natalie. Uh, she's a CEO of Ecocash. She was on a task force, and we've actually been working with her IEX to help establish a different kind of stock exchange in Zimbabwe. And when you start to look at things at a more, you know, macro level, but micro on the continent of Africa, and you see a country like Zimbabwe, where there is some money and there is a stock exchange and there are large companies trading on it. But there's thousands and thousands of these smaller enterprises that Akam was mentioning that just need the cash introduction. And someone like Natalie with EcoCash and this exchange is doing it. So I thought it was very interesting we could get involved in things like that. And that's just one example of something we did tangentially on the task force that I, that I think was very, very useful. And there was something done in real life application. Ronald, you're being very modest yeah. because um, you guys are... He's not very <laughs> modest. <laughs> Just today, podcast, just today. Yeah. Uh, what you yeah. guys did with Natalie, who herself is an extraordinary leader in, in the fintech sector and, and leads EcoCash in Zimbabwe, where 90% of adults now transact payments. And, and yeah. this company, this platform didn't exist five years ago. And this is when we talk about revolution in digital finance is an area. But what you guys did together, and it was a co-benefit of us meeting in the task force, was to establish the world's first stock exchange that draws on automatically generated payments data from business to provide robust due diligence and credit ratings for pr prospective listings. And I think that in a country that is economically extremely challenged, as we know, is an illustration that you know, there is money in every economy. And I think this brings us perhaps also to why do we call this people's money? You know, the report has as its headline titled People's Money. 
It is in part also because digital allows us to connect people who are ultimately the owners of capital in the world. I mean, we are all taxpayers, so money that goes into government, you know, there is digital finance and public expenditure. But as savers, as contributors to pension funds, you know, we essentially, as a collective seven and a half billion people, make up the capital that we then intermediate in all these institutional settings, be it government budgets or be it in, in hedge funds, investment funds, banks. And I think digital has this extraordinary opportunity to connect people and their money to larger things. So the stock exchange in Zimbabwe is one, but also Bangladesh being able to now use millions of microsavers to aggregate them in order to fund priority national infrastructure, being able to leverage that domestic savings money and yes. then combine it with international loans and, and, and borrowings creates an entirely different prospect for, for development finance. But clearly, there's, there's huge opportunities there. I, I'm interested to get your thoughts on one aspect of this, and this, this involves how we measure the progress in meeting these goals and provide financial innovation in order to encourage companies to make progress on things like climate change, use of scarce resources, et cetera. Your report, I, thought, I think, makes a lot of good points and recommendations. It seems to me it very much leans in the direction of suggesting that governments and regulatory authorities should lean in the direction of, of pushing companies to, to do that and to uh, make progress in all of those areas. There's obviously big differences among jurisdictions in terms of their appetite to impose those kinds of mandates as opposed to sort of responding to the demand because there is a, a huge demand among investors and the public generally. So I'd love to get your thoughts about how you see the balance uh, between those. John, you, you raise a very important point and, and let me emphasize right up front. I think the task force is in no way suggesting that the future of digital finance is um, essentially one of legislation. What it, I think, recognizes is that we have an extraordinary opportunity that is technology-led, entrepreneurial-led. It is the ingenuity of business people, of um, you know, software developers that create these extraordinary platforms that we see enabling people to do things today that were unimaginable just five years ago. And you know, last December, we would not have predicted some of the things that are happening in the midst of this pandemic, would have expected them maybe in five years' time. There are governments right now that are using digital finance platforms to pay these cash transfers out to hundreds of millions of people. These, the infrastructure didn't exist, the programs didn't exist, the legislation didn't exist, and yet in a matter of weeks because of the pandemic, we saw this, this, this revolution unfolding. And I think what is critical here is to appreciate that Technology in itself is a means to an end. And for some people, it is a fantastic means to an end. It's Klondike. You know, you came up with an idea, you become a major player in the market. But for the future of our financial system, we are dealing with something that is more akin to an ecosystem. You know, it must, it must work for everyone because otherwise it may only work for a period of time. That is one issue. Mm -hmm. And I think people who are often worried about government regulation forget that some of the greatest success stories of capitalism rest on wise and smart legislation, registered trademarks, intellectual property, the very foundation upon which you can raise capital in markets to invest in yep. innovation is a legislative act. It was government stepping in and saying, we need something to protect intellectual property. And I think we're at an unprecedented moment in terms of digital finance coming out everywhere. The question is, how do we shape this digital finance ecosystem? How do we make sure that it is inclusive and not perhaps in danger of creating more inequality? That is as much a, an issue in each country's domestic context, but also internationally. 
cryptocurrencies are going to become a ubiquitous reality. Most developing countries are not at the table right now to agree how does the world work with cryptocurrencies. This is why it was so important that we had central bank governors in our, in our task force also. My understanding, or at least recollection, is some of the earliest use of cryptocurrencies really gained traction in less developed countries where there are people looking for means to either repatriate money or receive payments without having to pay disproportionate fees to settlement firms or, or traditional and, financial institutions. You know, it may even surprise uh, some of your listeners that the UN is already working with, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain. I mean, whether it's the World Food Program, you know, today, this evening, 100 million people on this planet are able to have a meal in a desperate situation, maybe as refugees, as victims of a natural disaster. And, you know, the World Food Program needs to transact an extraordinary amount of data in order to be able to identify these people, make sure that the right people have access to money. So they were pioneers. UNICEF equally using blockchain now, UNDP working with countries to look, for example, at remittances and trying to reduce the amount of money that people have to pay in order to transmit their money back to their families. We are all experimenting with this, but it is an experimental phase. And uh, I think the, the really interesting part is it will change our entire financial system. And you guys yeah. see it, you know, when the US already more than 35% of all US public equities trades are run by computer-managed funds. I mean, you, you, you know that this has been happening almost below the, the attention radar of us as public citizens. Yeah. How do we make sure that this enormous power, you know, that, that comes with being able to shape this 300 plus trillion dollar money economy, that it actually aligns with also where people believe their money needs to be put to work? You may still, you know, have debates over climate change. I mean, I, I wish people would take a more risk-informed approach. And maybe it's all a hoax, but if it's a hoax... Yeah, well, I think we would agree with you on that. Yeah. Well, and we need to, therefore, invest in cleaner energy. And the extraordinary thing is that, you know, digital also allows us not only to manage grids in different ways, to bring in, you know, intermittent renewable energy, but also to mobilize finance. And people, you know, particularly in the impact investment side, are a precursor to, I think, what many of your institutions are seeing in the marketplace. People are more informed, they want more transparency, they want to earn a return on their investment, but they also want to be assured that their money is actually contributing to solutions rather than making things worse. And herein lies, I think, one reason why the financial sector has been so engaged both on the digital end of technology, but also on the sustainable development goals, let's say, concept as a way of looking at what is helping and what is making things worse. Yeah, well, I, I mean, no question, there is huge demand among investors, um, institutional and retail investors, for a lot more information and a lot more empowerment in terms of the ability to direct their money towards uh, companies and uses um, that, that sort of reflect their own values in that respect. We had one of our earlier guests on this podcast was a woman named Erica Karp, who started a firm called Cornerstone um, Capital, which is a boutique advisory firm that specifically advises both companies and investors with respect to screening investments for those purposes. So there's a, there's a huge appetite for that, huge need to kind of meet that demand. And I think, John, what we'll do is when we post this podcast, we'll, we'll include with it a, a link to the report because it's definitely a report worth reading. Uh, we would have read it anyway because we were on the task force, but we read it this week ahead of talking <laughs> to you. And it was, you know, it was a piece of art. I mean, it, was, it was fantastic. And like I said, it was fantastic to be involved in it. If I could pivot uh, really quick uh, over to like COVID, right? So 
you know, obviously you've talked about a lot of different countries in the world and maybe here in the U.S. we're feeling a little sorry for ourselves being cooped up in our houses for six months and our Wi-Fi is not even faster than 100 meg or something crazy like that. Mm-hmm. But in the grand scheme of the world and, you know, the 100 million people gaining food, like you just said, like in refugee situations, do you at the U.N. have any, um, have any overall view on how, how did COVID impact poorer countries, for lack of a better term, than than like Europe and, and the US? Let me start by quoting one of my colleagues it's, um, who described the reality of poor people in poorer countries in this pandemic as follows. It's very expensive to be poor in the midst of a pandemic. And there are many ways in which to describe that. I mean, the first thing is, <clears throat> if you just look at, for example, the European Union, able to decide that they want to raise 750 billion euros in order to inject capital into their economies, manage COVID-19. The ability to borrow on capital markets is a fraction of the cost of what a developing country would have to pay. So just that basic ability of governments to step in and say, we can actually stabilize this crisis is already fundamentally different depending on whether you're a wealthy country or a poor country. So that's the first real preoccupation. Uh, it's a crazy perspective. Yes. And, yeah. and you know, this is just a truly basic financial issue. The second thing is, as the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, step forward when the crisis unfolded, it uh, essentially has a trillion dollars that it can lend to countries to create so-called fiscal space, i.e. enable governments to be able to do something about you know, lockdowns and helping the poor and the vulnerable. But then something interesting happened. Countries are scared to borrow that money because financial markets will punish countries. So the borrowing will become even more expensive. Mm-hmm. And here, you know, ratings agencies, uh, maybe some of um, the you know, employees of rating agencies are listening this morning for me, it's a little bit of a desperate situation because being scared of borrowing means essentially precluding millions, if not hundreds of millions of people having a livelihood tomorrow because the rating agents also have to ask themselves, they're doing their job, but we are in an unusual, exceptional situation. How do we deal with a financial market that cannot simply operate as if nothing else has happened and let's all hope that the V-shaped recovery happens tomorrow? And just the fact that financial markets are doing so well while the rest of the world is drifting towards a true abysmal economic outlook with debt defaults and essentially many governments running out of the spare cash they even had to manage the first few months, tells you why our work also in this digital finance task force is so important. If our financial system becomes so divorced from the reality of people, sooner or later something will give way. And It, it has to catch up, right? Uh, a yeah. financial system can uh, run only so far ahead of kind of where people are in the real economy. There has to be some alignment at some point. And it's not stupidity. It's not ignorance. It's the incentives. It's perhaps the disincentives that are in the financial system. I think this is where I think things will be very different in the years to come. And we will see that the financial world, I think, will increasingly, partly because citizens will want it, people will want it is invested in the future of our communities and our societies. And that doesn't mean, you know, only, you know, philanthropic agendas. It actually goes to the core of investing in our energy system, our transport systems, our cities, our rural communities. And how do we make that, in a sense, both interesting from an investment point of view, but also deliver a public good in the process? And, you know, this is not rocket science. I mean, frankly speaking, our history and America's history in the 20th century is full of these examples. The, the New Deal is a great illustration yeah. of how public investment triggered multiples of, of private capital to invest in an infrastructure that throughout the 20th century was the envy of every country on the planet. Yeah. 
Extraordinary. I, I, I was curious on just the personal front. I understand that you and uh, some of your colleagues there at the UN have, have started to go back into your office there for at least a little bit a week, maybe, maybe starting this week or last week, but very recently. Really interested to get your perspective on what that's been like having been absent for some period of time. And um, from a personal perspective, how important is it to be able to be in the physical space and see people face to face? Well, first of all, let me preface the remark, our very cautious return is not an act of you know, heroism or, or, or complacency. It is, in a sense, experimenting with how we can reestablish that which makes it possible for the United Nations to work. You know, this is a cauldron in which so many things are boiling and diplomacy that is so often derided and people say it's a talking shop. You know, I always remind people that isn't it much better people are talking to each other than pointing guns at each other and, and, you know, diplomacy. <laughs> and, and shooting at each other. Yes, yes. And, you know, we are human beings and, you know, diplomats can make a difference when they talk to each other here and then go back to their capitals and, and bring another perspective. So we are indeed um, trying to return physically to work, although the UN has not stopped working for one day since we had to lock down as residents of New York City or in, uh, in Bamako, or in Brasilia, or wherever else we work. And I, I want to emphasize that because the political perception of the UN with the Security Council struggling and, and not being physically able to meet did not in any way mean that the United Nations, the Children's Program, UNICEF, the World Food Program, us as uh, the Development Program, we stopped working. But we need to get back to at least having the opportunity from time to time to bring people together. And so the, the feeling is a strange one because, you know, my office is virtually empty. We have a very strict policy of phased return. We're extremely cautious. So it's a little bit like ghost town. And yet it was also reassuring. I stepped into my office this morning. A couple of my colleagues were there. We keep physical distance. We wear masks. And, you know, we have all the, the gadgets that are now part of the new office reality. But it is also hopeful. Um, even though things are looking so bleak right. right now, there's something very emotional about being able to say, look, I mean, we've lost a, a world in which we took for granted, but we can also rebuild it. And, and that's this notion that the Secretary General has advocated, build forward better. Don't lose sight in your darkest moments that there is always going to be a tomorrow. And you know, just going back to the office is a tiny little step in that kind of psyche. Yeah, it's funny, uh, John and I were just talking today because we're planning... Uh, IEX employees are not required back in the office till January because we're trying to just figure out how to do things. And as you've seen from our office, we sit in like a trading room yes. uh, situation. So obviously we can't bring everybody back now, but um, John and I and a couple of others plan to go back in early October, if only for a couple of days a week, see if productivity is the same being in the office while others are at home, clients are at home, and we'll see how it goes. But yeah, it's a, it's not it's not any attempt at heroism. I agree with you because... Uh, my wife's asking, you know, why? And it's it's just a matter of like, you know, we've got to try and get back to normal, do so safely. And no one has been forced to come back. It's totally voluntary. In fact, you basically, sometimes voluntary, especially on Wall Street, it's a strong word. It's like a, you can volunteer to come back and they wink you. We're, we're actually mm -hmm. saying you have to apply to come back to get permission to come back. But yeah, right. uh, so it's great to hear you say that because we're about a month away from doing so. 
but I think it'll I can't make a big wait. Difference. I can't wait to see you again in person. Yeah, I can't wait to see you in person, John. No, I'm just sick of seeing his room and like yeah. all this stuff. <laughs> My dirty just, dishes and I, I, yeah, various. I other need things. to see John with it with a different background. Yeah. Um, now I think about it as almost like creating sort of a volunteer ex expeditionary force, you know, to sort of like go back into the office and wow. see what that feels like. That's a yeah, great it's way. A to... It's a yeah. Learned a lot about perhaps uh, each other also in the way that we got to know the space in which people had to retreat to. I mean, I find it fascinating to just see what people are hanging on their wall. I've learned a lot about yeah. people's life stories by just asking, "What's that behind you?" You know, and in that sense, it's, yes. it's that sort of slightly disintermediated socialized experience yeah. that, um, you know, I know we don't want to have as a permanency, but um, there is good yeah. and bad in what we're going through right now. And I think living in New York City, and I've been here throughout, you know, the pandemic, it's been sad to the extreme. And it's also been extraordinarily inspiring because in the midst of the worst, worst moments, I saw things in my street, in my neighborhood, in the city happening that, that just demonstrated what it means to have solidarity in your heart and your mind. Yep. And I think this will be with us for the rest of our lives. Yeah, it's funny. We've, we've, a lot of people have been saying it recently. You, no one's going to forget 2020. True. It's been just one yeah. of those years. And it's, yeah, you know, I have a 15-year-old boy and a 16-year-old girl. And it's like, you know, obviously short lives so far, but it's a big proportion of it. And um, they're kind of excited to get back to school next week and wear masks. So, yeah, you're you're right. It's a it's in in the grand scheme of things, relative to some of the people that you interact with and help, uh, we're very blessed people. So, um, and you know, we we've been doing this podcast, and from the very beginning, we've been doing it remotely, never making light of the situation, but just been happy that we can continue to do this. Yeah, and and like you, I miss you, I, John. We, but I absolutely <laughs> I miss you too, Ronan. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have been li living most of the time out on Long Island, but we go back into the city uh, periodically. And the con and the and the contrast between April, of course, which was extremely grim and depressing, and and now is does feel much more hopeful, much more. Uh, the vibe is much better. The sense of uh, life and activity on the streets is uh, there, there's a, a significant difference. And so I do think going through the process of starting to reintroduce yourself to the working world in a, in a little bit more normal way is uh, is a hopeful sign. So I got a, I got a happy topic for you now. I okay. can get away from <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, I brought it we, down. Didn't I run? No, we, we right. love you. We yeah. love you. I, lo I love the room behind mm -hmm. you. No. So yeah. we ask every guest who joins us on our podcast, I come to tell us uh, their favorite wall street movie and why. Since many of the Wall Street movies are a very ambivalent experience because they usually have something to do with bankruptcy <laughs> or, uh, you know, yes, yes. wolves being let loose. On, on That's why I can't wait to hear your one. <laughs> well, I, I was pleasantly surprised when I, I stepped into the IEX offices. So, uh, no, but let me say, I, I, you know, the one that came to mind was Martin Cole. I don't know if you know that. It kind of speaks to... Uh, something that, you know, we know as a different metaphor, you know, when frogs uh, essentially sit in boiling or, or water and don't notice that the water is beginning to boil. I think margin yes, yeah. call is, is a little bit emblematic for what in the last few years has become a more and more frequent phenomenon that in our world of finance and its ingenuity, technology enabled, uh, it's almost unbridled power to determine what happens next on the planet it kind of overlooks some of the most basic fundamentals. And um, in that sense, I found it an intriguing movie because it wasn't out of any ill will. It was not even out of any maliciousness. 
it was one of those accidents. And I think one of the reasons why I believe so much in bringing that task force together that we had, we need to look at, at our world today uh, from many different angles and many different perspectives. And that gives us a kind of 360 perspective. And so to those who often argue, you know, we are the financial sector, we are the tech sector, the less government, the better, I would say, actually, many of you wouldn't be around here probably if it wasn't for, you know, generations before you who built a society and economy that allowed you to be an entrepreneur, that allowed you to have the opportunity to have an internet on which you can build the business that you are driving yeah. today. And so margin call is both a kind of brutal reminder that, you know, it just can take 12 hours and everything's gone. <laughs> and yet it's also a life's work. And I think in that sense, yeah, I would say favorite might be the wrong adjective, but it's certainly one that comes to mind. The one that's stuck yeah. in your mind. And then another thing we do for all our guests, and you did use the word transparency. It had nothing to do with trading, but transparency. Ding, 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 okay. ding. You get yeah, your sure. very own pair of IEX socks. Yes, mm -hmm. it sucks. It's mm -hmm. not a vest. <laughs> it's not a head. It's a pair of socks. But I have to tell you, they're good. I hope they are either from recycled material or that their value commercially is very low. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, we as UN officials are not allowed to accept any gifts, except if they're very low value and very practical. Well, you can, I think you. I think you're safe there. Yeah, yeah. they're 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 socks. Agam, they're socks. But they are very low value. But actually, I will say our team going forward, or like over the past year, anything that we give out from uh, gifts, they go for the sustainability aspect of them, and it's it's on there and it's noted. So it's a sort of it's kind of like walking the walk, and we we definitely do that. So so we'll get them over to you. Listen, we really genuinely appreciate you being a guest here. I was a big fan of yours before. I'm even bigger fan now. People like you actually make a make a difference in this world. John and I, uh, I don't know yet. You, you have, we, you have definitely time. elevated the level of the discussion of uh, yes. Ronan and uh, my discussion for this podcast. So we're that may be a, a mixed signal, right? Uh, I hope it was fun enough. But let me just also say something to both of you because one reason why I really was looking forward to a chance to this podcast with you. You know, sometimes working for the United Nations or for a non-profit sounds in itself like a great thing to do. But actually, you know, it is in the hands of people such as yourselves to help shape us what happens next. And I, I often think that we, we need to remind ourselves whether you work in a, in a hedge fund or in an, uh, you know, in an industry or in a public uh, institution, one of the great things of the 21st century, I think, that it is teaching us is that each one of us has to somewhere converge on what happens next. And so my deep appreciation to, to you, Ronan, <clears throat> but also to IEX, because you took a step into a terrain that is you know, not normal and you embraced uh, that discussion in ways that I truly, truly am grateful for because it is in the world's financial system and the world's financial markets that we will decide whether the future is, is one that we can look forward to or whether we're going to continue to sort of, you know, just look for the shortest possible route to income and forget that there is a generation coming after us. And I think that is the beauty of this moment. It has really focused our attention. So thank you to both of you. And it's, it's been great to be with you. Yeah, no, the, the, honor, the honor was ours as IEX to be part of the task force. And John and I are certainly honored, genuinely, to have you on this podcast. We are. You have been both entertaining and thought-provoking. We'll have to have you back. Yeah, we'll have to have you back. So we'll say goodbye to that. You're going to make fun of me again, John? <laughs> no, please. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ronan. Over and out. Goodbye, uh, boxes and lines. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>
opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group, Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group, Inc. All rights reserved.